This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Attention all personnel, please clear the launching area. Fire, fire. Oh, baby. I'll give it to you. That was really good. Yes, it does. It's dead on. Okay, keep the chatter down in this room. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set, yeah. Welcome to the 100th edition of Space Boffins in partnership with The Naked Scientist. I'm Sue Nelson. And I'm Richard Hollingham. And that first episode was in June 2012, which if you do the maths doesn't entirely make sense. (laughs) No, neither does it make sense by the fact that our first ever Space Boffins was in July 2011 at the very first sort of UK space agency or space Space conference. conference. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. It's our 100th for The Naked Scientist. Absolutely. Yep. Now, the world was a very different place in 2012. I th- think we were at the London Olympics, weren't yep. we? L- London Surrounded Olympics, Surrounded by Bolt. thousands of people. Yeah, uh, well, what's reassuring, though, a constant throughout. Space boffins is more or less the same. I was looking yeah, at the... Um, a little older, we did. a little wider. <laughs> we covered JUICE, uh, the European mission to Jupiter. Solar Orbiter we covered, which is, of course, launched this year. And we celebrated SpaceX's first Dragon mission to the ISS. Our guests were Andrew Coates and Mike Hanlon. Very sadly, Mike Hanlon no longer with us. And I need to listen to this podcast because I'm almost certain there'll be a Mike Hanlon rant <laughs> within it. Um, you know, as, as part of, his, a part of his, his legacy as a great science journalist. And also some great books on Mars as well that uh, he'd written. Later, anyway, in this rather packed episode, we've got an extended interview with NASA's Head of Science Director, Thomas Zaburkin, on Mars, the Moon, the new James Webb Space Telescope and NASA's role as a beacon of diversity, as opposed to a cup or a mug. We'll also be discussing mission patches with a space artist, Tim Gagnon, and hearing about an asteroid mining experiment. A mug, a mug of diversity. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, this November marks 20 years of continuous occupation of the International Space Station, the ISS, which means since the year 2000, there have always been people in orbit around the Earth. That's, um, it's pretty staggering. That's that. not bad, actually, because that means November, almost, almost our sun just by a couple of months, has always had known that there's been someone in space. So there is an, an entire generation that doesn't know what it was like to not have people on a space station, which is pretty 
pretty good in itself. And we'll be celebrating that achievement in Space Boffins over the coming episodes because we've got far too much to fit in in just uh, one podcast. But this time we're joined by the Human Exploration Programme Manager for the UK Space Agency, Libby Jackson. Libby, 20 years. That's a milestone, isn't it? It's mind-bogglingly <laughs> wonderful. I, it's still, over the last few years, I've been saying to, to people at school, there have been people in space your whole life and as those people have got older and older and and you mention your son it becomes ever more amazing to me but then you you sort of go back behind that um, and what predated the International Space Station and the wonderful thing that was Mir the the Soviet Russian space station and that was flying since the 80s and and it wasn't very many months when between Mir being decrewed, having nobody on it, and the space station having permanent occupation. It wasn't terribly long at all. And so it's sort of almost most of my life there have been people in space. And I find that uh, even more amazing and, and sort of sign of how far we've come and how much we've learned and found out because it's all about science since the you know the, the very dawn of the, the space exploration era back in the, the 60s. Well, we'll talk more in a second, but as I've doubtless mentioned before, I was one of the few foreign journalists at Baikonur for the launch of the first stage of the ISS, the Zarya module, on a proton rocket. That's back in November 1998. Now, unfortunately, my overexcited live report for BBC Five Live... <laughs> no longer exists. Um, but here's a bit of the rather underwhelming NASA commentary instead. Main engine start, six engines up and running. And liftoff. Liftoff of the proton rocket and the Zarya control module. The International Space Station is underway. The proton building up thrust, good roll and pitch program according to flight controllers. The first component of the International Space Station heading toward orbit. I just think he sounds a bit bored about it. Now, what I have found, though, and this is tremendously exciting, uh, is an interview I did from Baikonur uh, shortly after launch, and this is for the BBC World Service. I was standing six kilometres away, and it was still a very impressive sight. These proton rockets are very big. This lump of space station is very big. It's 12 metres long. So it needs a lot of thrust to get it out through the clouds and into orbit. Um, a very impressive sight. More so impressive noise, a tremendous roar from the thrusters on the proton rocket, and a stuttering roar, really deafening and quite quite terrifying at times. I think the person you're thinking of is Alan Partridge. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like the fact it's very big and very impressive. It was very big was and very, very impressive. Big. I think that was all off the top of my head, though, to be fair. Okay. <laughs> Now, Libby, part of the reason we play that um, is not just humiliation, uh, but uh, because of the remarkable shift in the the UK's attitude to the to the ISS and to human spaceflight. I mean, I was covering this for the World Service back in the late nineteen nineties. I went to the launch, and I made a report, which was uh, the UK Space Agency's uh, predecessor, the British National Space Centre, in which the head of science said it's going to be an orbiting white elephant, and yet now here we are. We've had a UK astronaut, Tim Peake, and the UK supporting science on the ISS. Yeah, it, it's been a huge shift and, and one I've lived through because I grew up dreaming of working in human exploration. But through the 80s and 90s, learnt this uh, position of the UK government that they just weren't supporting 
uh, human exploration. And this is despite the big sort of strange anomaly in all of this, that the UK was one of the original signatories to the intergovernmental agreement that, that set in place the international legal sta- statutes for this cooperation, this amazing cooperation in space that, that has led uh, to the ISS. But despite signing that, um, which I believe um, was sort of all formalised in, in 1998, it wasn't until until 2012 that the UK actually started contributing um, to the programmes through the European Space Agency's exploration programmes and playing its part and opening up this this unique scientific facility to the scientists uh, based here in the UK and the, the flight of Tim Peake that followed and the inspiration and the, the outreach that that has brought and the spotlight that we've been able to shine on the UK space industry as a whole because Every time we talk about astronauts and human exploration, and and they do so often capture the imagination of the public and the news media headlines, it is always a really great opportunity to to sort of look wider than just the astronauts because they are the top of a a huge iceberg. And the, the teams of people around the world who support them in both what we do on the space station, but then the much, much wider industry of which the UK has a thriving space industry and, uh, say, across Europe all around the world, and, and the amazing actually, opportunities in that. Yeah, and I was going to say, you actually worked on uh, on space station science and with astronauts before you ended up at the at the UK Space Agency. Yeah, my, my route was, um, I started in the UK space industry at what is now Airbus, um, working in a satellite mission control um, project, and then went to Germany uh, to the Europe's uh, control center, East European Space Agency's control center for the space station. And I was there as the Columbus module, Europe's part of this amazing space station, uh, roared off uh, the launch pad on the shuttle and hey, I worked out there for seven years in mission control. I was a flight controller and a flight director, seeing up close, you know, everything that goes on being part of that team that, that makes it all happen. Now, you mentioned uh, Columbus there, which is the ESA's, the European Science Lab, effectively, uh, up on the uh, space station. What do you think has been the biggest achievement of the space station in terms of its science? For me, it is about the huge multidisciplinary nature. The nature of what it does, people are saying, what is the, the one big thing? What can you point at? Uh, where can you look? And and the truth is that it just has good you know, and significant contributions in so many different fields. It stems from uh, things like the ASIM experiment that's recently uh, been on the space station, the European Space Agency experiment, that is looking at what happens with thunderstorms. And these things, uh, I'm going to get the names wrong, but blue pixies and white sprites or red sprites, they have the most amazing names. Oh, um, yeah, I've seen seen videos of, of, of them and they do look quite incredible. There, there are these phenomena that scientists have sort of thought existed, but but couldn't study and this um, instrument on the space station um, has seen them they were first spotted um, by the human eye by astronauts uh, by um, I believe it was um, Andy Morganson and that's really changed that particular area of science and helped with it what we're doing in areas of understanding plant biology helps us understand how things grow we've been looking at materials and helping to develop new materials it's so wide-ranging that I can't pick out just one thing. I, I actually don't even begin to, to to 
um, pretend that I understand all of the different parts of science. That's interesting because I honestly thought you would come in with the human body in terms of what it's taught us most is how the human body reacts to, responds to being in space. That's the example that's often thrown about, isn't it, in terms of how it then transfers to certain conditions on Earth, be it osteoporosis or... And it is a wonderful tool for that. And I think one of the reasons we talk about it so much is because it's a more relatable and perhaps easily explainable um, bit of science that is happening. And one of the reasons that the astronauts are there, you know, the, the, the research that happens on all these, these other fields, a lot of it is done remotely by scientists on the ground. The astronauts do not much more than, than put the experiment in place and sometimes leave it alone for, you know, months, years at a time sometimes. But the research that you do on humans can't be done any other way. And definitely um, helps us understand, you know, how bones and muscles age, how, how our bodies change and all of that. But I, I wouldn't want to pull out the aging and the health benefits and say that that is a, a more beneficial or amazing piece of science that we do than any of these other fields. One of the best things about my job is that I talk to researchers in the UK, I say who, who some of them are studying how complex fluids work and, and, and you get into these teeny tiny nanoparticle things in fluids and how you're going to rearrange them and create amazing new materials and and all kinds of things in between from 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 the biology to the plants to, to, to the thunderstorms as we said and it's just so broad and so varied and one of the things I really enjoy in my job is is trying to help scientists from all sorts of different areas who are doing superb amazing research in their particular field, see how space and the International Space Station and, and what we call microgravity, uh, floating around, taking gravity out of the equation, can help them in their field. Um, a lot of people come up to me and will say, how do I become a space researcher? I want to work in space. And I, I sort of have to gently explain to them that nobody particularly is a space researcher. They are researching something you know, amazing and specific and space is just one of the tools at their disposal that helps them unlock the secrets of, of the particular thing that they're looking at. Um, and it's, it's a location. No, yeah. <laughs> it's, a it's, it's in some ways no different to, to putting your experiment into a what we, you know, the diamond light source that's at Harwell that uh, I does, you know, bombards things with radiation. Or you know, if you were to go to CERN or even just say I want to go and you know use a facility in the university and look under a microscope it, it's just another way of doing science. One of the new UK experiments due to fly to the ISS in November is bioasteroids an experiment to investigate how microorganisms break down rock in space. Well the lead scientist on the project is Charles Coquel, a professor of astrobiology at the University of Edinburgh and he told me what the experiment involved. BioAsteroid is an experiment to see whether we can use microbes to process space resources, whether that's mining elements in space or turning pieces of asteroids into soil that we might want to sustain a human presence in space, but also to learn something about the way in which microbes break down rocks on the Earth. For example, biomining, which is the biological mining of rocks, is a multi-billion dollar industry and an environmentally friendly way of extracting elements from rocks. How do microbes grow on rocks? What are the fundamental principles that decide whether a microbe is going to grow on the surface of a rock? So BioAsteroid is about flying some 
small pieces of meteorite, which is basically asteroid, that's where it came from, up to the International Space Station and letting microbes chomp away on them for about two weeks and then seeing what they did to it. Now, when you say pieces of asteroid, this is not, you're not talking giant space rocks. This is quite a compact experiment. It's a very compact experiment. The apparatus that we spent 10 years designing is about 10 centimetres long by about four centimetres wide. It fits in a, in a small centrifuge on the International Space Station. And in that piece of apparatus is a tiny little chamber that's got our crushed up meteorite in it. It's chondritic meteorite. So it's primitive material formed in the solar system four and a half billion years ago, the same material from which asteroids is made. So essentially, we've got a tiny piece of asteroid crushed up inside our container. And we've got a number of those because it's a science experiment. We've got everything in triplicate because we want to get multiple samples. And the microbes are dried down. They fly into space, dried down, and then we activate them by feeding them some nutrients that allows them to grow. And then they start growing and they attack the asteroid. And we see exactly how they do that and what the result is. And and you talked about, uh, in the abstract for this experiment, it talks about bio-mining. So how does it work on Earth and how might it work in space then? Yes, well, bio-mining is using microbes to break down rocks. About 10% of the world's copper and gold is extracted from rocks using bio-mining. So this is not some science fiction idea. It's a very widespread process. And we could do the same thing in space as well. The great thing about microbes is that they just need to be fed some food. Without the microbes, you have to do nasty things like add cyanide and other compounds to rocks to break them down. So it's very environmentally destructive to do this with toxic chemical compounds. So if we can employ microbes, not only can we do it faster, but we can also remove all the toxic chemicals that you don't really want on the Earth and you probably don't want in your space station on the Moon or Mars either. Now, we, we've spoken in the past uh, about interplanetary travel and, and colonising uh, space. One of those ideas in science fiction is the idea of a sort of hollow asteroid where you have a, a community living within that and the asteroid provides protection. Is this at the back of your mind that some <laughs> sort of, you know, using this ultimately, I mean, going from a, a very small cassette sized uh, experiment to something where you actually could you know, but engineer uh, uh, asteroids yes. with this so sort this of technology. Bernal's classic hollowed out asteroid. Yes, why not? I mean, if you're going to, ho- I mean, I think the idea of a hollowed out asteroid, it's an engineering uh, challenge, I would say, but it's a good idea because there you've got radiation shielding quite naturally and, a, and an interior surface. So if you were to do something like that, hollow out an asteroid, instead of just throwing out the material into space and having it drift off, why not mine it for elements? And perhaps you could employ microbes to help form your cavity in your asteroid in which you're going to live. So yes, I mean, I think that anywhere where we use biology is a good idea. Biology and microbes, life in general, has spent the last three and a half billion years evolving mechanisms to do various things that they do in the natural environment. Why try and reinvent these things? I think it's a good idea to employ life to carry out processes that we might want to do in space. Microbes are everywhere. So if they're going to come with you, why not get them to do something useful? Charles Cacal from the University of Edinburgh. I have to say, actually, I'm sorry, my voice was a bit distorted on that. It's because that was recorded on the day we bought the espresso machine. And I think I'd had quite a few espressos by then, so I was practically shouting. Uh, and Libby, I mean, there's, 
there's a long way to go from a small cassette uh, on the space station to hollowing out asteroids, obviously. But I love the fact that this is a UK experiment looking at, at these sorts of things, at looking at biology and rock in space. Yeah, and we're seeing more and more disciplines get involved across the UK in the research. One of the things that Charles didn't mention that to me makes this so groundbreaking and so exciting is that this is one of the very first, uh, in fact, the very first commercial experiment that is being run by a company called Kaiser Space and their service, the Bioreactor Express Service. And, And what it's meant is that Unusually, this experiment hasn't been selected by the European Space Agency or by the UK Space Agency. In this case, uh, Charles has actually got funding direct uh, from the university who have seen the benefit and the excitement of his research and have said, well, we're going to support it. But wherever that funding has come from, what what Charles has done is he has bought access to space for his experiment. And that might seem perhaps sort of strange and, and people go, well, what's the excitement of that? But what it means is that anyone now who has an idea or an experiment or wants to do some research to further their business can get access to space. And and this is part of this, this commercialization, this opening up of low Earth orbit, where the International Space Station is, to many, many more people. And and, uh, the UK is particularly um, excited about the opportunities it can bring to UK businesses. We've seen the SpaceX flight just recently. SpaceX and indeed Boeing are going to be selling tickets on the open market. People can can buy a ticket if you've got deep enough pockets. But this access to space that Charles has been using is is, is the sort of smaller version of that, the more affordable version of that for for many of us. So do you see the ISS ultimately or becoming commercial or other space stations, other commercial space stations becoming viable in orbit? Yeah, I, I hope so, because that's what has to happen if space agencies around the world, including the UK Space Agency with the European Space Agency and others, are going to be able to afford to send humans and and explore the moon and then one day that horizon goal that that is there and the global exploration roadmap that we talk about of sending humans to Mars. And we have limited resources, uh, limited pockets in in government. Uh, We can't afford to keep running the International Space Station as an institutional government-funded operation and do everything that we want to do um, to send people back to the moon for the scientific and the technology that we'll get out of that uh, and say on to Mars. Let's talk then about um, Gateway and, and the, the mm. moon, the, ne- the next stage then. How is that planning out? Can you give us a vision of what the current plan is for, for, for Gateway and for this, this orbiting, well, I suppose, lab or at least staging post around the moon? Yeah, and the, the Lunar Gateway is going to look sort of similar to the International Space Station, but much, much smaller. The International Space Station is is sometimes described as like a sort of five, six bedroom house and it's uh, 100 metres from one end to the other. The gateway is going to be much more studio flat for two people kind of thing (laughs) out in the the moon. Uh, It's tiny, uh, really, compared to the space station. But contracts have been placed, things are being built. Europe, through the European Space Agency, with the UK involved, is going to be contributing key parts to that. That is on course and, as I say, is is, is happening. The vehicle that will take um, crew, astronauts, to that um, gateway 
is the Artemis program. So the Orion spacecraft, which is a sort of you know, modern day version of Apollo conical capsule supported by a service module that's being built by the European Space Agency. So a, a true international effort that will take people there. And then NASA are still aiming at their 2024 goal of, of returning humans to the surface of the moon. That's going to be... A, Ambitious, a sort of... I think the words you're looking for, isn't it? I think... Uh... <laughs> uh, it's, it's going to be a... Yes, that's going to be a sort of a flag-waving mission, perhaps, is, is one way of putting it. And then the, the sort of idea is, is beyond that, there would be a more sustainable international approach uh, with with landers cargo vehicles perhaps um, that the European Space Agency is looking at, there are still sort of parts of the puzzle being slotted together. But the the first steps and the vision is is there, and things are being built. And we'll we'll pick up on some of those points in our chat with NASA's head of science later on. Now you may remember in a previous podcast <laughs> me mentioning how much I love space stamps, and we're still hoping to get a space stamp designer on at some stage I did find someone and I got really excited and then discovered he died sort of 10 years ago but in the meantime huge thanks to Jeff Osborne in Vancouver Washington State in the United States he's a regular listener thank you Jeff and he sent me a lovely lovely collection of stamps a 1991 US achievements in space stamp set and I'm absolutely thrilled with him thank you so much I'll put photographs up on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram so that you can actually see these beauties uh, for yourself. I'm also a bit of an avid mission patch collector and I know I won't be the only one and I did manage to catch up with aerospace artist Tim Gagnon via Zoom from his home in Florida. He's painted portraits of Apollo astronaut Jack Swaggart, shuttle commander Eileen Collins and Hugh Harris who um, you may remember from our podcast did the shuttle launch commentary until the shuttle cleared the towel. There's another one in our back catalogue that's worth listening to. And if you've ever bought a mission patch of a shuttle or an ISS mission, there's a good chance that Tim would have designed it. So I began by asking him how his love of space and art began. Well, in 1972, I was uh, watching the Apollo program and I desperately wanted to see a launch. So I wrote to my U.S. senator asking if he would arrange for me to be invited to a launch. And nobody in my family, including me, expected he would respond positively. But darned if he didn't. And uh, they arranged with NASA to invite me to the launch of Apollo 17, which was set for December of that year. And then I had to write back to him and say, can you invite my father? (laughs) because I was 16 years old. I couldn't rent a car. I couldn't rent a hotel room. I mean, you know, those things like that didn't happen back then. So they did. And my dad and I spent three glorious days touring and and looking at the exhibits and then seeing the launch of Apollo 17. Ignition sequence started. All engines are started. We have ignition. Two, one, zero. We have a liftoff. We have a liftoff, and it's lighting up the area. It's just like daylight here at Kennedy Space Center as the Saturn V is moving off the pad. It has now cleared the tower. Tower, yours complete. We're in a roll, Bob. Roger, Gino, looking great. Russ, good on all five engines. Okay, baby, it's looking good here. Roll is complete. We are pitching. 
during that time, I learned that Robert McCall, who was the aerospace artist, in my opinion, designed the mission patch. And up until then, I didn't think outside artists even participated in that way. The next year, because I couldn't do an Apollo mission, they were all gone. So the next year, I started writing to astronauts. And the first opportunity came when they were thinking of doing a, a Skylab rescue mission. So I wrote to the commander, Vance Brand, and I sent him a couple of sketches. And I said, you know, is this something, you know, that we could do? And he responded. He was very gracious in his, in his compliments, uh, probably more than I deserved because I, uh, I sent them and they were done in crayon. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they weren't even painted or anything. But uh, he told me to keep at it, keep working. He appreciated my support. But by the time he responded, they had been able to come up with a workaround so that the rescue mission wasn't required. So opportunity missed. Good news for the Skylab crew, bad news for my art career. So I just kept at it. I kept uh, working on sketches and, and writing to astronauts. And finally, 31 years later, a crew said, sure, you can design our patch. And that was Expedition 11. That was in 2004. It flew in the spring of 2005. And then they told another crew and, you know, we got to, uh, can, you know, be successful more than once. How many patches have you now designed for NASA? About 20. And do you have a favorite? There are special memories with, with a number of patches because it's, it's about working with the people. But uh, I always say the, my favorite one is the next one, because going into this, I mean, when I was younger, artists maybe did one patch, maybe two. Bob McCall did, I think, about seven uh, mission patches, and he did some incredibly beautiful work. Before coming to talk to you, I thought, I'm just going to have a quick look at the ones I've got. And I thought, what were the reasons behind me buying them? Like, I've got one here. Sadly, I'm sorry, this isn't one of yours because I checked. Um, I bought this specific one, which was a, a mission, an ISS mission 46, because it had it's Tim Peake and it's got a Union Jack on. So, you know, that was my reasoning for, for that one. I mission patches with Eileen Collins because... I'd interviewed Eileen Collins and I like ones which have got women's names on. But then also uh-huh. I like some of the older ones because of the colours and if they're unusual. So this Grissom Young GT3 Molly Brown one because it's green and orange and it's beautiful and it's different. So you see, it's very, it can vary in terms of colour, it can, it sure. can be name. And, and for you as an artist, how do you approach each one to make them slightly different when after all, each shuttle mission has a shuttle, had a shuttle. Mm-hmm. Each space yeah. station mission has a space station. Well, we always start with the mission requirements. Every mission is slightly different, different payload, different uh, objectives. So we start with that and we try to imagine, okay, how do we illustrate that kind of a mission? Let's see. I don't know if there's any that are handy that you can see on camera. Can you see this one up here? STS-129. Google it on your... uh... I can. Hold on. Ooh, this looks nice. This is a square with a circle circle. underneath. That's a very unusual shape. Yeah. 
Yeah, that crew had to get special permission because the NASA specifications are the, the patch can't be any larger than four and a half inches. And that one is about five and three quarters tall. I better describe it as well in more detail for people who obviously aren't, aren't necessarily immediately by their computers. I said it was a circle with a square on top in that you've got the a section of the earth with, with green and, and, and it looks like the, the, the Florida bit of the of the united states and then you've got the silhouette of the shuttle uh, immediately going directly above with a red white and blue line coming from a star at the top of right. the diamond that... with an inset diamond and a moon and then it what looks like is that mars since the shuttle program was ending and the next program to be had at that time was constellation they wanted everything they could put into that patch they wanted to show that transition and and every crew has a different group personality and these guys were just a lot of fun the two diamond shapes represent the two external pallets that they were carrying up they wanted to show the continental united states because this was one of the later rarer all u.s astronaut crews and they uh, specifically requested no clouds over the Cape because they didn't want a weather delay for launch. And the stars on that patch represent their children. So we were almost all done with um, creating the patch. And they contacted me and said, add one more star. And uh, you don't question it, you just do it. And, uh, but I had an idea why they made the request. And uh, on the, the day of the mission, when Randy Bresnik took his first spacewalk, his daughter was born. So that star was for her. That's lovely. Every patch is uh, meaningful. For example, if you now Google STS-127. <laughs> there we go. Didn't know I was going to have to do so much work on this one. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's a beautiful one. To me, now, that's got memories of almost retro science fiction because of the way you've got a star with a yellow... It looks like a star with streaming light, a very stylized crescent moon with about four or five shades of blue and a silhouette of the shell. That's lovely. Oh, I'll have to buy well, that, that. That's actually a crescent Earth. Ah, and right. And... As in both the 127 and 129 patches, that star with the three trailing rays, that's mm -hmm. representative of the astronaut pin. Every astronaut, when they become an astronaut after completing training, uh, they are awarded a silver pin. And then once they've made their first space flight, the pin is now gold. So that's why you'll see a lot of designs incorporate something like that that's right. Into I've, got, the I've got 128 here. Which, well, there you go. Perfect. Which is not, not that's, your, that's again, I don't think this right is thing. yours, is it? But you're right. It's, and I, again, I've got this one because it's, I've worked Nicole. with Nicole Stott yes, <laughs> several times. He's lovely. Yeah, she's a super uh, so lady. That's got Nicole Stott's uh, name on that one. So, uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's that's it's, not it's, one of my patches, but I did no, work I'm with sorry. Kevin Ford. <laughs> the pilot on that flight was Kevin Ford. And he was commander of Expedition 34, and he asked us to work with him. 
Is there a mission patch that you would absolutely love to do? Not necessarily for NASA, it could be for an, a space agency around the world, or it could be for a commercial space flight company. You know, if you had your choice, what would you like to do? Well, being a, a, a child of Apollo, I would love a mission patch that was flying to the moon to be wearing my artwork. I would love to see my artwork on the moon. So do we. Space artist and mission patch designer Tim Gagnon. And you can learn more about the patches he designed on his website, kscartist.com. And and I sort of feel I have to apologise. As, as you probably heard, every mission patch I, I mentioned that I had wasn't one of Tim's. But I looked through my collection again. Did and you I not fi- do your research? I did do my research, yeah. but I just didn't find it. I reckon it was hidden because my patches are in with a load of material because I'm making this space quilt. Yeah, the, the and I found quilt. one. So, Tim, if you're listening, I have got Expedition 27 International Space Station, which includes uh, an ESA astronaut, Nespoli, recognise that name. I have one of your mission patches. Thank you, thank you. How vast, Libby, is your collection of mission <laughs> patches? Your microphone is actually sitting on top of my box of them. And, uh, it's <laughs> Great. Because <laughs> I had them out earlier looking for them. I've always collected them too, and I, I, I was thinking about this. I think it stems from the fact that I was a brownie and a girl guide and have a camp blanket full of all my brownie and, and girl guide badges. And as I've got into space, I've, I've always liked them and enjoyed them for, for the symbolism. But as I've begun working on missions, they're like my, my badges for them. And I've always had this intention to sew them on my camp blanket. And instead, they're sitting in a box under your <laughs> microphone. I've got a Beagle 2 mission patch. Now, that's pretty darn cool. I don't think I'm going to sew that on the quilt. I think I might frame that one. Libby, what's yeah. your what's your favourite? The Expedition 16 mission patch is, is special to me because that was the ISX expedition that installed Columbus at the start of um, Europe's uh, work in the International Space Station. There is, of course, the Principia mission patch. Tim asked the the children of the UK to design uh, through a Blue Peter competition, which represents uh, Tim's flight. And and everything that 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 meant for the UK and particularly for young people, which um, I uh, had the privilege of of managing the education and outreach programme for the UK Space Agency on. So that, to me... Is, is really the one that means the most because that has been my the mission that, that throughout my career has is, is, is meant the most to me and, and the thing that I'm most proud of doing. I really think we ought to do it. We ought to design a, a space well, You must, you must. Uh, Libby Jackson, Human Exploration Programme Manager for the UK Space Agency. Thank you very much for joining us and thanks also to the agency for continuing to support space boffins do get in touch with us if you've got any comments suggestions thoughts about patches or stamps um, you can find us on facebook twitter instagram email info at boffinmedia.co.uk this is the 100th edition of the space boffins podcast in partnership with the naked scientists we're going to dedicate the rest of the podcast to one interview with NASA's Head of Science, or rather NASA's Associate Administrator for the Science Mission Directorate, Thomas Zaburkin. He's responsible for all NASA science missions, which include the Perseverance rover on its way to Mars, exploration of the Moon, and launching next year the giant new James Webb Space Telescope. It'll be powerful enough to look back to the very dawn of time, but is massively over budget and years behind schedule. 
Well, in our chat, we'll talk about the merits of astronauts over rovers, plans to rename astronomical objects, and of course, we'll bring up the James Webb Space Telescope. But we started by asking how much he was looking forward to Perseverance, investigating an area on Mars which once had flowing water. So first of all, happy anniversary. I'm a fan. Uh, so I really, really uh, appreciate all your good work uh, talking about science and related topics. And Thank yes, you. absolutely. Uh, we're on the way uh, to Mars. We already are uh, over a million miles away uh, from from the Earth uh, and uh, going towards Mars. And we can't wait uh, to go land there in February and look at this environment. You know, it's a dried out lake uh, about the size of Lake Tahoe. You know, I sometimes you see the pictures next to these ski resorts. It's a place that is... Three billion years ago looked very different. A river came in. There's a river delta there. And and that's exactly the kind of place we would look at, at Earth, uh, if we wanted to look for fossils. And that's why we're going there. I just really can't wait to go down there and for the first time look at it up front with cameras that we brought with Perseverance. Now, did you welcome the sort of competition effectively? I know it's it's sort of not competition, but at the same way it is. You know, you had United Arab Emirates going up and within a sort of week or so, you also had China going to Mars as well. Science as an activity, as a pursuit of humanity is international. Uh, we look at the same sky. We look at the same sun. Uh, we live on the same planet, the Earth. And many of the topics that we're investigating, uh, we actually do together. Our science community is one community. And so in that sense, we welcome every investment by international uh, partners or even uh, countries that we don't often work together with, uh, like China. If they put their money towards uh, science and investigations like that, I feel uh, we're a better world. So uh, we have... Uh, a lot of excitement about uh, every one of those missions and, of course, with wish him the best. Oh, that's lovely to hear. The sort of fever over sending human beings to Mars has sort of s- slowed down a little bit while everyone's got excited once again with, with robotic exploration, with these new new missions and these advanced rovers and even, you know, in your case, this sort of helicopter system. Do you think this is going to put human beings going to Mars on the back burner when actually the safest way and, and they, you know, so much more science to be done that could be done without a crew. I believe that the human exploration activities right now are really focused on getting humans out of near Earth orbit and really getting towards the moon or lunar vicinities. And the worldwide community is really focused on that. I think that's why we're talking a little bit less about humans to Mars, uh, mostly as a horizon goal. For me, personally, you know, I I don't really uh, see a huge contradiction between uh, robotic and human exploration. Uh, You may or may not know that uh, where I did my PhD in Switzerland, uh, I did so in a department that was opened up because of an experiment that happened on the moon as part of the first Apollo landing, you know, a solar sail that was put up there. That measurement, by the way, was only uh, exceeded in accuracy during the time I was in Bern, which is the late 90s. And so this entire time, the isotopic composition of the sun of noble gases, for example, was set by an experiment that was enabled by human exploration. We believe similar type of uh, 
analyses and experiments are possible looking at the moon, looking at Mars. Uh, I think there's a lot of robotic exploration that can be done, but I'm just as excited about human exploration being done and enabling science that otherwise, frankly, cannot be performed with robots. So what sort of thing, if we talk about the moon then, what sort of thing can humans do that that robots can't on the moon? I mean, Mars, I, I can understand when you've got the time delay and you can't control rovers in real time, but on the moon, surely you could do a lot from orbit around the moon. You don't actually need to have boots on the ground, as it were. It is possible to do many things on the ground also with rovers, and we've proven that over the last few decades But uh, make no mistake, cognizant human on the surface of the moon, for example, in these uh, water deposits at the poles, are going to teach us a lot more science than a given rover. If you looked at uh, the Apollo program as as a comparator, right, the ratio may be 10 to 1 or 100 to 1, right, given a time of unit of time and the gains in science from that. So I think they both have their place and together they make the best exploration program. What about the, the split between public and private? What can, what should be done publicly? What what can NASA do with its international partners and, and what would private companies do? I mean, does one lay the groundwork for the other or, or do you continue to work in partnership? I really believe that over time... It is the goal of government, in this case NASA, that's what I speak for, to open up doors uh, for markets and for private investments and companies to take over some of the things that we used to do as a government. Uh, I want to remind you that the Perseverance rover that we just launched into space, of course, was launched on a private rocket. It's a company, that United Launch Alliance, that is there, and we bought that service. Uh, This decades ago used to be a NASA rocket, much more controlled by the government. There's many uh, ways, for example, the way we uh, do uh, supplies to crew, where we have a very hands-off relationship with partners that we help grow. I believe the same kind of model needs to occur uh, for sustainable space exploration beyond uh, low Earth orbit. We need to figure out how we can open up uh, opportunities and go into a, a service by type of business model as opposed to owning and operating systems, which is much more expensive for us. And often we can become the hindrance of of progress. So partnership is really, I think, the theme that brings us forward. And it's partnership with commercial partners, but also with international partners. Ultimately, as I said before, in science, but also in exploration overall, as we go towards Mars, but even at the moon already, it's international partnerships uh, that are enabling and absolutely critical to get it right. We want to explore together. We don't want to work alone. And frankly, that's one of the elements of working at NASA that I've really deeply appreciated before I even joined, which is that leadership and partnerships are not opposing values. They are values that really are lived out every day. What would you say is leading the continued attempt to return to the moon? Would you say it was science or perhaps this new business model, because that's the the sort of best way to really further and test and build on what you've got already in terms of a public-private partnership. I think at the heart of it is really the desire to keep human exploration to be an exploration arm of NASA. 
that means that new things need to be done. The moment you make a decision that something like 20 years in low Earth orbit are laudable and are an exciting victory of the international community, but you want to go beyond that, the next step must be the moon. It's, it's you know, three days away or so of travel, you know, and, and it, it's a celestial body that deserves exploration and uh, deserves uh, scientific studies. I would less think about it as there's a requirement to have this science done or there's a requirement to have this flag standing there. Remember, U.S. flags are on the moon already, so there's that box has been checked. It's really to expand the realm of humanity, uh, both of where we can live, but also how we think about what's achievable. That's kind of, we, we summarize with the word exploration, right? That is at the heart of it. All the others are hows and what is enabled if we do that. Now, in terms of science and, and great science, you know, Hubble Space Telescope is is up there in terms of its discoveries and what it's changed in terms of our knowledge of the universe. James Webb Space Telescope, hoping to do the same. As you know, I mean, one of the British instruments um, that's been built for that is MIRI has, was completed a long time ago. So a lot of people in the UK were disappointed as an understatement, I suppose, that the launch had been delayed. But actually, there was a lot of excitement again that there was suddenly a date put on it, which is now October 2021. Is that, fingers crossed, going to be the final delay or or is it just a hope? It's my full expectation that it's the final delay. I just want to give you some of the context. So, one of the hardest things I had to do in my job is something like two years ago, recognize that the team was not converging onto a final launch. I basically realized that we were standing still. So in other words, every three months, we found a three-month problem. So basically, what I did is I commissioned an independent review, and uh, I found that even though the project had done amazing work, uh, for example, on the spacecraft and the instruments with our international partners, including Miri from the UK, the spacecraft bus, you know, the kind of vehicle that brings it to where it needs to be and supports it and, and gives it power and so forth, was not making progress at the level and that we had real systemic issues in there. Uh, if you look at the team today, uh, you would notice that basically the whole leadership has been replaced. Now, I just want to tell you, the last year, that team performed like a great team. Before COVID, the team behaved exactly like we showed up. We were tracked. We we're making progress exactly like we said on the outside. And uh, the last quarter before uh, COVID hit, I had a quarterly meeting. I meet with this team two to three times per week. So the point is, I, I'm watching the ball. So I'm, I'm. This is not some kind of impression that I read in a document. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm watching it. The last quarter before COVID, we did all the tasks without using a single day of schedule reserve, which is another way of saying that the team performed perfectly. There have not been a quarter like that in all of the lifetime of James Webb. And so for me, when I tell you that I'm confident about the the October date, it's based on that. It's based on the work that I'm seeing right now. As we speak today, uh, the spacecraft is on a cart and is basically integrated into uh, uh, the vibrational facility, which is an integrated test of the entire spacecraft in launch configuration to make sure that it survives 
a launch, we have, of course, acoustics test to do the same. And then we have a full deploy and a fold again with, you know, some minor tests in between. And then we're shipping. Roughly a year from now, we expect to say goodbye to this uh, spacecraft as we're uh, shipping it from the U.S. uh, to the European Space Agency's launch facilities. I want to ask you a question about um, diversity, because, you know, NASA put out a press release a couple of days ago um, about being more culturally sensitive when it comes to naming astronomical objects. And one of the examples in that was the Eskimo Nebula. And, And they do sound, it does sound sort of tone deaf now to sort of speak of those sort of names. I mean, is that part of what you're you're trying to do is to make perception of NASA, and perception give it, give of space update, more diverse? Really, yeah. I do believe that the NASA today uh, is a NASA that fundamentally is welcoming to people of all genders, of all backgrounds and race and whatever. It is true that that aspirational goal for us to be the a shining light uh, for really showing what diverse teams of humans coming together, unite from the United States, but also internationally, being a shining light of of what the human spirit can achieve in one of the most important pursuits of humanity, which is to do science. That goal we need to work on, and we need to constantly watch. And this uh, update of our naming conventions and so forth is just a step in that there will be many more things that we will do, and we already have done, uh, activities we've pursued to make sure that our policies are not limiting access, that actually we're actively pursuing the inclusion of a more diverse uh, set of partners. I want to give you an example. The first two years of of me at work, uh, basically in three out of the four science disciplines in our principal investigator-led missions, uh, we got something like 150 or more proposals, none of which were led by female principal investigators. You know, as a father of a daughter, that is not acceptable. The fact that in the Apollo program, uh, most of the uh, scientists or engineers that you saw on TV were men in white shirts and ties is a part of history. Yeah, I don't want to in 10 years look back or in 15 years and basically say, well, I did nothing about that. So we started training sessions and not just focused on gender diversity, but really opening up the door to many. So there's many different activities uh, that we're dealing with. Cultural issues like diversity and inclusion require constant attentions and a multi-pronged approach. That's what we're committed to. Uh, just one final question. What what are your potential highlights for the next couple of years? I mean, I can see the, uh, I mean, we know that uh, you've got Perseverance is going to get to Mars in February. And potentially, I mean, the next couple of years with James Webb and all the rest of it, it is looking pretty exciting. Oh, we have a year in front of us, which is almost unprecedented in the history of NASA and I think in the history of space exploration in general. So this November, we of course have Sentinel-6 Michael Freilich just this week, our friend uh, and former Earth Science Director Michael Freilich passed away, uh, succumbed to pancreatic cancer, and his name is on a European-led mission. And it's it just it's such a meaningful thing for all of us. I already talked to Josef Faschbacher, our the head of uh, Earth Science and European Space Agency, and, and thanked them again. And we talked about how important that is for us. What's after that, of course, are launches of Lucy going to the Trojan uh, you know, asteroids, we have uh, launches of DART 
which is a kind of collision experiment uh, for planetary defense. We have uh, Earth science missions that are getting ready to launch uh, in, uh, in that time frame, such as SWAT, which is an ocean science mission together with France. Uh, NISAR is the year behind it, which is another mission with India. And uh, we also have ICSPI, which is an X-ray polarimetry mission uh, looking at the universe. So we have just a lot of uh, exciting uh, missions that are getting ready. Uh, it must be, though, that uh, James Webb is the crowning goal for next year. That is the mission that I'm going to spend a lot of time focused on. NASA's head of science, Thomas Zaburkin, a fan of space boffins, of course, and uh, great to hear him and uh, all about those missions firsthand. Uh, I, what I admire, I think, most about Thomas and what he says is his honesty. Yes. And his honesty about where things have gone wrong with James Webb and where they're now going right the risks and, you know, tackling things like diversity and saying, you know, NASA's going to be this beacon. And actually, if you look back to the 70s, it has been. You know, you look for uh, the selection of the first space shuttle uh, candidates. NASA, unlike the rest of America at the time, went out of its way to recruit the first women, the first African-Americans, first Hispanic, first Asian-Americans. And, and without realising at the time, the first gay people as well. So, yes, it's... Uh, and also, actually, NASA, when you look into their history, although it can appear all male and white, you know, as hidden figures shown, has shown, it was never always like that. Plus the fact that NASA employed Native Americans in their space program. I think the diversity has always been there. It's just often been hidden. But and you ha- now you have- it's more up front and it's, it's playing a much greater role and celebrated. I think that's the other thing is now it's being celebrated, which I do admire them for. You only have to read the comments section on the uh, Daily Express uh, story <laughs> about uh, renaming the Eskimo Nebula, though, to uh, see their other, opinion- other opinions on they, that. They called it woke, didn't they? Yeah. yeah. I, to be honest, I don't see what's so woke about not using the word Eskimo anymore, well, exactly, quite exactly. frankly, but there you go. Hey, hey. Well, do get in touch with us, and if you've got nice things to say, like uh, Thomas Suburkin, uh, do write a review on the podcast app you use. If this is your first Space Boffins, then there are 99 more episodes to listen to. M- more? Oh, oh, but not on the Naked Scientist website. No, no, no. 99, no, 99 more, on the, more on the way. Yeah, no, 99 more I'll on get this, it eventually. Yeah, yeah 99 more <laughs> on... Nine to nine. 99 more on this particular RSS feed, which is the Naked Scientist one. So you can go back and then you can find the other feed, which still exists somewhere, and hear the original the first year of Space Boffins. And in fact, I did mention... And they're on... quite rare because not many people listen to no, those. No, but on um, Twitter the other day, I saw that, I think it was Herb Baker, who's been on our podcast before, and he'd tweeted a happy birthday to Diohara astronaut nurse uh, Mercury 7 who's also been on our podcast and so I was able to then link to a 2016 edition and when you think about it that's the amazing thing when we look back on the sort of people we've had it's it's pretty incredible from Apollo astronauts earlier than Apollo We've had British pioneers of space as well at high down in the Isle of Wight. We've had United Arab Emirates quite recently talking about their plans for 
Mars, we've had Issa and the Rosetta crew for years and years following that lovely, amazing mission. We've not done too badly, actually, as well as Apollo astronauts. I think we've had Apollo astronauts from every mission apart from Apollo 14. Ah. But I might have to go back and, and revisit that. I'm pretty sure we've we've covered every mission. Well, that's, yeah, that's yeah. that's good. And I think what I like about doing the podcast as well is that it's it's not always the bling of astronauts is it uh, well, look we did i badges, mean we do like branches exactly we've also covered we've had space poetry we've had writers oh there's who, a whole special edition of public service broadcasting we had them before they hit it big we didn't did. we <laughs> we did have it before they hit it big that's there somewhere i mean it's a whole archive of stuff yeah there. it's uh, we should be proud of ourselves i know so. i am i am unusually <laughs> i am sort of sitting a little bit taller and think, yeah, we've done good. Yes, yeah, we finished now? Yeah. Okay. Thanks again to the UK Space Agency for supporting the podcast. We will be back next month with more on the ISS. Thanks for listening. We've done good.